0: You are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love Jesus and become more like Him. Paul. A servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart from the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God, empowered by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, would you please turn to Colossians 3, 1 to 4? You must the 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 它显现的时候, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is Cuthbert.
1: Okay, so yes, um, we'll be looking at those two passages. Um, so Romans first. I have that one open in in front of you. Romans chapter one, verses one to four. So what what did the resurrection do? What did the resurrection do? Now I think tonight. I think this will be, in large part, consolidation. I don't think it's going to surprise you when I say that uh, the resurrection did more than just prove that the cross worked. Uh, I think you already know that the resurrection is bigger than simply proving that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, it actually worked. That is true. His resurrection does make it clear that he has conquered sin on the cross, and he's conquered sin in us, we can be forgiven and assured of that because of his resurrection. But his resurrection does more than that, and you've been learning about that, and so tonight I'm going to preach what you've been learning so we can mull it over together, I guess, is the idea in preaching and applying the word of God to our hearts. But what does the resurrection do? Uh, My son Barnaby... um, uh, came into my office a while back when he was 10. I think I said he was 10 the other night, but he's actually 11. <laughs> so, yeah, um, we're a close family, honestly. But uh, So, um, actually, he's not. He's about to turn 11. Sorry, man, this is really messed up. So, no, so he came into my office, uh, very close. So he came into my office and, and he said, Dad, I want to go around to the, to the corner store and get an, uh, an ice cream. Um, have you got any cash? Have you got any money? And I said, uh, no, I don't. We don't have a lot of cash lying around. Um, I opened up my drawer, pulled out my, my bank card and, um, you know, my ATM card, and I gave it to him and said, just take that. <laughs> and my son is looking at it, just staring at it, going, what do, what do, I, what do I do with this? Uh, he, he didn't know what to do with it because nose um, to us, he just hadn't really noticed that often we paid with a card. In fact, most of the time we use a phone when he's around. That's what I usually use for small purchases. And so we just didn't know what to do with the card. And I said to him, you take that card and you tap it on the little thing they point to at the you know the register, the checkout thing at the, at the ice cream shop, and it'll pay for you. They'll give you the ice cream. And he was just like, you can see the gears going. To, I, j- I just tap this bit of plastic and I get an ice cream? This is unbelievable. And I can just sort of, sort of see him looking around, what other bits of plastic can I just grab? And <laughs> This could be awesome. And here's this, just this bit of plastic, but in that moment he saw that it was way more powerful than he could ever imagine. He had no idea... It was that powerful. And if you pick up, not my card, if you pick up my card, it really isn't very powerful. <laughs> but if you, if you pick up some people's cards, it could have a lot of money there, right? It's very powerful to have that card in your hand. But It's just a little bit of plastic. And, and the cross is incredibly, the resurrection, the resurrection is incredibly powerful. It accomplishes so much. And that's what I want to meditate on tonight. It's huge that the resurrection proves, demonstrates that we have actually been forgiven, that it did work, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That is huge, but there's more. It's even bigger, more expansive, more amazing than that. In some ways, the resurrection is the beginning of God's salvation work, in in a sense. It's not quite true, but in a sense, it's so huge. It's so monumental. It's such a big change that happens at the resurrection. It's almost like that's the real beginning. That's when things really start to happen. What does the resurrection do? Well, there are two things I want to say about the resurrection tonight. The first is um, it's it's his coronation. What does the resurrection do? It's his coronation. And secondly, just two points, but they might be long, so don't be deceived. The second point is, it's our sanctification. It's his coronation, it's our sanctification. That's what the resurrection does. There's more to it even than that, but that's two big things it does, achieves. His coronation, our sanctification. So the first thing then is it's his coronation. It's his coronation. Just back to the first slide, I'm just, just so it's more visually pleasing for me, it's disturbing me having both points up at the same time. So it's, it's his coronation. Look here in, uh, in Romans uh, verses 1 through 2, 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, so the good news, the gospel, the good news, He promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his Son, the good news is about his Son. Then why does he go on to talk about this? Who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David? Yeah, cool, but so what? And who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead? Jesus Christ our Lord. Why does he talk about that stuff in relation to the gospel? He's saying that the appointment, the declaration of Jesus descended from David as the Son of God, by the power of the Spirit, via the resurrection, by the resurrection... That's the good news? Why is that Paul's summary statement of the good news as he begins this amazing exposition of the good news in the book of Romans? That's his foundational starting point. Him being declared appointed son of God in power by his resurrection by the Holy Spirit. Well, again, I, I think by this stage you might know why, right? We're sort of doing a bit of a recap here. But uh, humor me and listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. Because if I were going to go to a, voice, uh, a, a verse in the Old Testament um, that captures or summarizes their understanding of the good news under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, if I wanted to go to a voice that summarized what they thought was their great hope, The good news that they'd been told, I think this is where I'd go. Isaiah 2 verse 2, it says there, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. As the highest of the mountains, it will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. It's talking there about Jerusalem. The verse before it makes that clear. The context is Jerusalem. Let me say it again. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established at God's presence. As the highest of the mountains, it will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. That's their understanding of the good news, the gospel, the good news that have been proclaimed, taught to God's people about the future and where it's all going to end and how it's all going to work out. He is going to be there, God with his people ruling in Jerusalem and all the nations will stream in because of the glory and the power of his rule. This is the hope of God's people. This is the hope of the Old Testament. And of course we know right, that um, throughout the Old Testament that particular vision is attached to the coming of the great king. A king like David, great King David's greatest son, is going to come and rule forever and make this vision happen. Right? That's the gospel. That's the good news. And here in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, Paul is saying, It's happened, it's here. Great King David's greatest son has come and he's on the throne. He's been declared the king who will rule forever. He's been appointed to the kingship over God's people, Israel, which will now mean that all the nations flood in and all the blessings from heaven are released Through his rule. But wait a minute, it says here, it says here, and again, I think you'll know this by now it says here, appointed the Son of God in power. Doesn't he mean appointed the Messiah, appointed the king? Well, yes, he does, but the Son of God is the title for the king. That's what it means. In Psalm 2, where we have what they call a coronation psalm, a song they would sing when a new king is installed in Jerusalem. In that psalm, it talks about God's king ruling under him and it calls that king God's son because he rules on behalf of God. He represents God. This is a, what they call a messianic title, a title that means Messiah, anointed one, king. So here we have the coming king, the king has come, been put on the throne in power by the resurrection, by the Holy Spirit through his resurrection. His resurrection demonstrates that he has defeated right why is this establishing him in power well it's 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 the resurrection has has demonstrated hasn't it that the great enemies of god's people have finally been defeated what is the great enemy of god's people that we saw last night What was really hindering them? What was really thwarting them as God's people? Do you remember? What was their problem? Idolatry. Sin. Spiritual blindness. Hopeless idolaters. Jesus has come and he's died on the cross and he has defeated sin in sinful humanity. He's defeated sin in God's people. He's released them from the devil. He's released them from death, the necessary consequent punishment for our sin. He's defeated sin, death, the devil. And so he's been demonstrated powerfully to be the great king who now will rule forever, having defeated all that really stood against God's people. but it gets even bigger. It gets even bigger. Because this appointment of the Son of God who will rule forever and make everything happen, you see in the Old Testament, right, that vision of the future, that exciting vision of liberation and blessing and God's rule, blah, blah, all that kind of stuff, that is concurrent with a whole bunch of other things that have, have to happen at the same time to make it happen, right? So there's the, the suffering servant in Isaiah. That somehow got something to do with God's people being healed, forgiven and ushering in a new age. There's this cataclysmic end time judgment that's dreadful and wonderful at the same time that's going to usher in the end times. There's the promise of the Holy Spirit that's going to indwell God's people and make them obedient. There's the promise of a new temple that will be established among God's people that will usher in the end times. There's this hope of a, of a, 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 a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Um, you know, he's going to be better than the priesthood they currently have that will actually work. They're looking forward to a sacrifice that will actually work because they have to keep on giving sacrifices again and again and again because they're not actually effective sacrifices. There are all these things. There's a vision of the Son of Man as well, bound up with this end-time vision. And you see, when Paul declares, when he writes here that, yes, this is the one. He is now on the throne. He is now ruling in power over all things forever Assumed in that declaration is that all this other stuff has happened, right? Because it all had to happen for that end vision, that end goal to work. But where is that suffering servant alongside Christ? Where is the temple? Where is the priest in the order of Melchizedek? Well, we know, don't we? It's Jesus, it's all in him. And so Paul, you can just you can almost see him bowing down as he writes this. He's been appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is there anything that is not brought in under His power and authority? He conquers sin, death. The devil, he rose, rules over all of creation and has defeated the groaning fallen creation and he's bringing in the new one even as we speak. It's a marvellous vision. It's, it's like the, I don't really know much about science so I could completely butcher this but I understand in my rudimentary sort of uh, primary school level science that there was a singularity, is that right? At the beginning of time? Could someone just say an amen if you know a singularity? You know, they talk about the big. The- Thanks. <laughs> I'll take that as an amen. So, you know, there's this, you know, may- maybe it's wrong, I don't know. But in my understanding, there's this, you know, there's a singularity at the Big Bang, and it's like there's a Big Bang, and pfft, like everything in the universe comes from this, this singularity, this, this condensed down energy, energy point, right? And it all just explodes out from that, the Big Bang. It's crazy, and it? it's a crazy thought. But here in Jesus Christ, we have this, this singularity, this, this, this concentrated point in which all the riches, all the power, all the glory, everything you need for everything is contained in Him. And as in one man, everything was ruined. In one man, everything is brought together and redeemed. That's what we have here. Everything is made by him, through him, for him. That's the good news. He's bringing everything in under his blessed rule. And there are many implications of this. Here in the book of Romans... Uh, This is the foundation for Paul to talk extensively about justification. We need to be right with God. He is the guy to do it. Obviously, right? And that's a big deal. And I don't want to ever forget that or for us to forget that. That is one of the chief implications of the Lordship of Christ is that we are right with God. He's got us. But there are many implications of Jesus being on the throne and just just one of them, which I think it's really important for us to get, is that we can patiently endure in all things, can't we? Now that we know that Jesus is on the throne, we can can patiently endure in all things. Things. There are lots of things in this world. We live in a groaning creation, in a groaning body. Lots of things that are not right, that we're not satisfied, that are troubling, that are difficult. Well, now that we know that Jesus is on the throne and that he has a crown of thorns, that his military honours are these scars from the cross, we have a king who is all-powerful and all-loving. We can trust him. We now know, don't we, that not everything has to work out just fine right now because we get it. We're in a groaning creation in the process of being redeemed. We're in a groaning body in the process of of being redeemed. What's happening now through Christ's rule? What's he doing now? He's bringing everything under his rule, right, by the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. We know that's the program, bringing more people in before that wonderful and dreadful final judgment day when all sin will be gotten rid of, but then all opportunity to be saved will also be gone. We know that's the program, so we can patiently wait. With hope, can't we? Jesus has got this. I reckon this is one of those ultimate hold my beer moments for Jesus. Jesus. Hold my beer, I got this. Putin would love to rule the world, wouldn't he? Xi Jinping would love to rule the world. Thank God they don't. Joe Biden is apparently the leader of the free world. I'm not sure he knows he's president of the USA. <laughs> Low. <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> thank good, goodness none of these men, thank goodness, thank God, literally, none of these men rule the whole world. And thank God Jesus does. And he loves us. And he looks after us, and he holds us, every single one of us. And so it really isn't too much to ask for us to patiently endure. And this is a big thing in the New Testament. Listen to what it says in the book of Romans, just a a, a few chapters on. It says... Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Jesus has got this because we know that suffering produces perseverance, Perseverance, character, and character, hope. By persevering, by patiently enduring suffering, it refines our hope in Christ. And we know that that hope is the only real hope worth orientating our life around, and we know that that hope will not disappoint because he's been declared with power to be the Son of God. He's got this. Colossians, I love this. Colossians. A bit long, bear with me. I'll emphasise the really exciting point. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Get this, being strengthened, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might. He's ramping up, right? Be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great, miraculous works through your fingertips, float above all the problems, glow, in a crowd, that you may have great endurance and patience. Are you hearing this? Jesus is on the throne. He's got this. This is a key thing that we need to embrace and develop in as Christians waiting for his return. We can patiently endure. For us now, I think, for instance, you know, you'll know, won't you, that you know, I, I, you know, knowing who you are, finding yourself, and releasing it, and living a life that is authentically you, is like a modern-day gospel. That's the good news. That's what's going to liberate you. You working out who you are and being authentic to who you are and and living according to the way you want to express yourself. And a lot of us, including myself, I I remember for, for many years when I was younger, even into my early 20s, I was really confused about who I was and what I was here for. And It can actually be really hard to work out who you are. And I'm not actually sure that we'll ever quite know who we are till the day we die. We can expect to be a little bit confused forever in a you know, fallen groaning world and a groaning body that doesn't quite know which way's up. We can trust God with that. Jesus has got this. I remember watching a documentary once, I love documentaries, called Next Step Hollywood, um, and there was this um, young Australian girl. It was, it was about a bunch of Australians who went over to Hollywood to try and make it. And, uh, and, she, and there was one girl in particular that I, I found really uh, her, her testimony was powerful and the story was really interesting. She went over there for you know, multiple times for many years, I don't know, like we're talking five, six, seven years, many years. She kept on flying back over to Hollywood to try out uh, for auditions, to get auditions for pilot season where you might get a chance of getting on a show that might have a chance of being produced and then you might make it in Hollywood. She kept going back and she just never, she never made it through. She never cracked it open. And there's this really powerful scene in Next Step Hollywood where she's sitting down under that famous Hollywood sign and she's looking really dejected and she's saying to the camera, I, I followed my heart here to Hollywood. My heart told me to come here. She was actually from Victoria in the country on the eastern side of Victoria somewhere. I think she was actually a part of, I don't know which, which um, I think it was Seventh-day Adventist, she was actually religious. And she'd come out of that, left her family, left her home to pursue her dreams, her heart. And she said, I pursued my heart here, and now I don't know what to do. It has not worked out. And I've asked my heart, what should I do? I've asked my heart, what's next? Where do I go from here? And my heart is silent. My heart is saying nothing. And, my friends, that makes sense in a fallen world. That makes perfect sense in a groaning body. And do you know who knows you? The one who sits on the throne, Jesus. He's got this. You can patiently endure with hope. So uh, what does the resurrection do? What does the resurrection do? It's his coronation and uh, it's our sanctification. It's his coronation and it's our sanctification because we know, right, that when Jesus uh, rose from the dead that we were also raised with him. It's an amazing, deep, hard-to-get-your-head-around truth the Bible makes very clear. And we see it here in Colossians. So we turn to Colossians now, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. And sanctification is a word that describes the process by which we become holy. Sanctification, the process by which we become holy. And the good news, the exciting news that we find in the New Testament is that it usually uses the word sanctification. In the past tense, that is, when it's talking about the process by which you've become holy, the process by which you were sanctified, it says, more often than not, that it's something that's happened in the past. And why has your holiness, you becoming holy, why has that happened in the past? Because the Bible says that you've already been raised with Christ. Who you are in the essence of your being is hidden in Christ. Look what it says here in Colossians 3, verses 1-4. to Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Look, isn't that language amazing? When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Another way way of describing it is that you've, you know, through faith, by his spirit, Christ has given us his spirit. By faith, we are connected to Jesus. We are united with Jesus. What is true for Jesus is true for us. When Jesus died on the cross, we died on the cross. When he rose again, we rose with him. The essence of who we are is caught up in who he is. I think the best illustration I know of to explain this is like when we get in a plane, just because of the language we use. It's really helpful, right? When you get on a plane, you say, I'm going to fly to Sydney. I'm going to fly to Adelaide. I'm going to fly to Darwin. I'm going to fly to... New- no one flies to New Zealand. I'm going to fly to Tasmania. I'm going to fly these places. I'm going to fly here, there, everywhere. But when you get on the plane, I ask you, how much flying do you actually do? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> the window is the sitting there going, "Flap my wings, <laughs> Do you get on the plane? I'd love to see the on a plane now. So she gets her and she just flaps her wings. Come on, I'm flying to Sydney. <laughs> or do you make little like engine noises? <laughs> I'm flying to Sydney. Do you think really hard? Plane lift off the ground. Plane lift off the ground. Come on, plane. I'm flying to Sydney. Plane lift off the ground. Actually, completely passive. When you get in the plane and you fly to Sydney, you're not flying to Sydney, you're being flown to Sydney, right? But it's just the way that we use the language. We somehow make sense, right, to say, I'm flying to Sydney. No, you're being flown to Sydney. You can't fly even a meter off the ground. Try it if you think I'm lying. I want to see you try it. What is true for the plain is true for us, right? And that's what it's saying in the gospel about Jesus. What is true for Jesus is true for us. When did I die for the sins that I even repeat now and feel really guilty about and I feel like power, sin has power over my life? But I say to myself in the mirror, Stuart, you've already died for that sin. Don't let that sin pretend it has victory and mastery over you. You've already defeated that sin on the cross. You, you paid for it in full. Past, present, future. You've died. What a wonderful, powerful truth. We have been sanctified, being made holy. We've been sanctified. And so part of us being made holy is de- described, you love these terms, part of us being made holy is called positional sanctification. Positional sanctification. That's the done and dusted holiness. Because we are are located in Christ, right? Who I am will be revealed. Like the the perfectly Christ-like stew, the perfectly Christ-like you will be revealed when Christ returns. Done and dusted. Positional sanctification. But because of Christ's resurrection, we in the flesh have also been resurrected. Our our resurrection has begun because God's spirit is in us. Jesus Christ's spirit has been given to us. The same spirit that was working in him to raise him from the dead is at work in us now. And so we are being progressively sanctified as well. Positional sanctification, but there is this progressive sanctification that happens in and because of Christ's resurrection. And I want to just spend a few seconds teasing out how one leads into the other, how one motivates the other, because I think this is so important. Because the chief way in which the New Testament pictures the Holy Spirit working in us to sanctify us in the New Testament is by positional sanctification. Because of who we are in Christ, we live now in grace. You see, what's the difference between living in the flesh and living by the Spirit? Let me tell you one formulation of this which I think is dreadfully unhelpful and isn't biblical. One understanding of this is, okay, when I lived in the flesh, I was powerless over my sin. Check, we're all on board. Now that I have the spirit in me, I've got this override function. It's the spirit. It's like a switch that flicks on. So when I'm when I'm, when I'm tempted by my sin, whereas I would have fallen when I was in the flesh, now I'm in the spirit. I have this, this power, this override switch, this, this motivational power that just takes over, which enables me to overcome that temptation. And that's the big difference, right? I was in the flesh, now I'm in the spirit. But actually, that is not the big difference that the Bible pictures. The big difference between being in the flesh and being in the spirit, according to the Bible, is that when you're in the flesh, you are under law. There's no other place for you to be. When you're in the flesh, you're under law. You're on your own. You have to make God's righteous standards by yourself or you're gone. In the spirit... You live in grace. That's the big contrast. In the flesh, you're under law. You're stuck under law. There's no other place for you to go. In the spirit, you live by grace. And that is the big contrast that you see in Romans chapter 7 going into Romans 8. Oh, what a wretched man I am. Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus because by the spirit I've put to death The sinful man, because of Jesus Christ, he has fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. Jesus Christ has done it for me, you see. I'm in grace now. It's not saying I have now some innate ability without even really trying to fulfill the demands of the law. It is not saying that. It is saying I was under law in my flesh. Now I live in grace because I'm in the spirit and I'm connected to Christ and it's done and dusted. And so what is the practical difference? Well, just imagine someone who cannot swim at all. They can't swim at all. Okay, How are you going to teach them to swim? Well, some of us might believe in tough love and throw them in the deep end of the pool. It's really deep because there's a high tower diving thing there, really, really deep. They can't swim at all. Oh, I'll get them to swim. I'll chuck them in the deep end. It's sink or swim, sucker. (laughs) And when they're thrown in the deep end, they are fighting for their life. And if they really can't swim, they will drown. And actually, they're not really learning how to swim because they're panicking. It's a dreadful mess. But put them in the shallow end, and it's a completely different ball game, isn't it? Their lack of ability to swim... Cannot kill them. And you see, the only thing it's worth them doing when they're sitting around in the shallow wind is to learn to swim. And it's fun. There's no consequence for the fact that they can't swim. Because any second they can touch the ground, they know that. And my friends, that is the difference for you. You've come to Christ. He is the King who rules. He's glorious. He's holy. He's loving. And you want to be just like him. I want to be just like him. But you know what the problem is? In my flesh, I've got the spirit in me, but I've got the flesh in me. So I'm, I'm in the flesh as well. Do you know what the problem is? I also love my sin. And I'm an habitual sinner. I'm actually, this is my personal testimony. I love sin. And I habitually sin. And I hate that I love sin. And I hate the fact that I habitually sin. And it really gets me down but I'm in the shallow end by grace. That sin that used to press me right down to the ground and say, I've got you, and would make me feel like I'm outside of the kingdom of heaven, has no power over me anymore because I live by grace. I'm not under law. And so, you know what? The only thing worthwhile doing is working at holiness. Sure, I'll sin. I'll sin again and again, and there'll be horrible, ugly, dogged sins that just keep re- rearing their ugly head, but they mean nothing to me. The only thing worth me working at is holiness and righteousness, and I'm free to do it, and I love it because I'm free to practice it, you see. I'm in the shallow end. I live by the Spirit. In an ocean of grace, an ocean of grace. Christ loves you. And he came to save sinners, of which Paul says, I am the chief sinner, I am the worst. And he came to do something that works for sinners. Those of you who are stuck wretchedly in horrible things like pornography, Jesus died for you and it works. You live in an ocean of grace. You think you're stuck. You can't believe you can call yourself a son or a daughter, but you can. And the only thing it is worth you actually working at is righteousness because it's the only thing in Christ by the power of the Spirit that matters anymore, that will have any consequence. In Christ, because of your positional sanctification, you have died to sin. Oh, what a saviour. What a king. What has the resurrection done? What did the resurrection do? It's his coronation. It's our sanctification. And let me end with this. It's a great quote from um, Rory Shiner's book. He's talking about um, the power of the resurrection and what it's done. He says, This resurrection... This resurrection is something you can take with you into the trenches of daily life. In any given week, at home, at the office, on the construction site, in the classroom, you will see signs of the old regime, sin and death and Satan doing their work as if they're still welcome. But they're not. How different to be able to look at sin in all its ugliness and be able to roll your eyes at it like your dad has shown up in his 1978 disco suit. Sin is real and it's horrible, but it's also tedious and boring and it has officially been put on notice. Jesus has risen. Sin and death are the losers. The game's up. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for the power of the resurrection. We thank you that in the resurrection, we can see the might, the glory of Christ's rule over everything. And we thank you that for us it means holiness and freedom and hope. Help us, God, to patiently endure. In your son's name, amen. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would love to support Monash Christian Union, you can do so via the link in the podcast description.